This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to Bookmark This, a Straits Times podcast in which we talk about books and their headlines and recommend you new reads. I'm Olivia Ho, and I'm here today with my co-host Tawen Lee. Hello. This episode, we are going to be talking about love. Because Valentine's Day is coming up, and even though we think it's a over-commercialized excuse for a holiday, it's we, not a holiday. Either. It's not even a holiday, <laughs> but we still believe in love and in the power of a good love poem. So, in this episode, we are going to be talking about a bunch of our favorite love poems: romantic, not so romantic, downright depressing, and uplifting. So, whether you are attached, hoping to be attached, consciously uncoupled, or self-partnered, we hope there will be something for you here. So where should we start off? Why don't we start with a slightly unconventional love poem, Valentine by Carol Ann Duffy. Olivia, do you want to get the ball rolling with this one? Okay, Valentine by Carol Ann Duffy. Until last year, she was Britain's poet laureate, and she's known for writing a lot of very beautiful love poems. I'm very fond of her volume Rapture, which is just pages after pages of love poems. I think Valentine is possibly her most famous one. It's quite an unusual conceit.、Mm-hmm. I'm gonna just read a little bit here. Not a red rose or a satin heart. I give you an onion. It is a moon wrapped in brown paper. It promises light, like the careful undressing of love. And so it goes on to compare love to an onion, which is not the most romantic thing you would think of immediately. But the conceit really works for me because she goes on to how onions make you cry, and so do lovers sometimes. And when you cut them, the smell remains on your fingers. <laughs> and if pungent, and if you get to the end of the onion, they make little white rings. Yeah, you're really taking this metaphor very far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's a very simple poem. It's not written in very flowery language. It kind of reminds me of this song by Taiwanese band Mayday,、mm. who happened to have a song known as Yang Tong, which is onion basically, and it's a similar conceit, not used in exactly the same way, but I think it alludes to this idea of the lover being this multi-layered. Person whom you want to unwrap as time goes by. One of my favorite love poems of all time is by Nizar Kabani, who's a Syrian poet. I really like Arab poets and how they have these very flowery language that we would, in another place, I might consider to be over the top. But for some reason, they make it sound timeless, and it seems to work. And Nizar Kabani was a Syrian poet and diplomat, and he was quite affected by the death of his sister. When he was fifteen, she killed herself because she couldn't marry the man that she loved. And he said at one point, when people said, "Are you a revolutionary?" he said, "Love in the Arab world is like a prisoner, and I want to set it free." This is a poem that is translated by Lina Jayusi and W. S. Merwin from the Arabic. I'm just going to read a short extract because it's quite long. I knew when I said I love you that I was inventing a new alphabet for a city where no one could read, that I was saying my poems into an empty theater and pouring my wine for those who could not taste it. When God gave you to me, I felt that He had loaded everything my way, and unsaid all His sacred books. And then later on, He goes on to say, "Your love threw me down in a land of wonder. It ambushed me like the scent of a woman stepping into an elevator." It surprised me in a coffee bar, sitting over a poem. I forgot the poem. It surprised me reading the lines in my palm. I forgot my palm. It dropped on me like a blind deaf wildfowl. Its feathers became tangled with mine. Its cries were twisted with mine. It surprised me as I sat on my suitcase waiting for the train of days. I forgot the days. 
I travel with you to the land of wonder. Your image is engraved on the face of my watch. It is engraved on each of the hands. It is etched on the weeks, months, years. My time is no longer mine. It is you. That's beautiful. I really like the last part. The power he says, "My time is no longer mine. It is you." You know, he doesn't say it is your time. It is yours. He just completely replaces this cosmic idea of time with his loved person. When you know he's saying, "It surprised me," and then I forgot. It surprised me, and then I forgot. And this person is just slowly erasing everything. All these metaphors that he comes up with, and it erases and erases, and he forgets until she is all. Well, I think it's a she. She is all that he can comprehend, and his whole time, his whole being. It's all just her. I think that's fascinating, and it really shows how the poem is working to convey that sentiment. I mean, we see how I mean later in this podcast we'll be encountering some other poems which do the work of loving or forgetting about love for the poet. This act of thrashing through pain and angst, or kind of working yourself towards a state of feeling more reconciled with loss. Yeah. So in terms of when we're talking about possessiveness, there's this poem that I really like by E. Cummings. I'm going to try and read a little bit of it here, but it has a lot of E.E. Cummings uses uncanny punctuation, and I can't really do parentheses in my voice, so <laughs> I'm just just assume the parentheses as they go. I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. I am never without it. Anywhere I go, you go, my dear. And whatever is done by only me is your doing, my darling. I fear no fate, for you are my fate, my sweet. And it goes on and on, and it says. It's you are whatever a moon has always meant, and whatever a sun will always sing is you. It's very sing-song, very sweet, very childlike. It's kind of possessive because it just is like everywhere you will go, I will go, and wherever I will go, you will go. Yeah. So depending on how you read it, it could either sound incredibly creepy or terribly <laughs> romantic. <laughs> yes, it's a matter of reciprocity. I think. No, I kind of fall into the latter category. I I like the parentheses because I feel. I mean, okay. On one hand, it makes it sound like he's being his own backup vocalist. He's saying, "I carry your heart with me. I carry, I carry it in my heart," <laughs> and on and on and on. But I don't know. I love how tentative it feels and how unsure. He seems to be when he's talking about his love for the person he's writing this poem about. I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. This sense of wavering uncertainty, I think, is quite touching. And I, I agree that it sounds a bit childlike, but there is a certain innocence to it. Yeah, and and that makes it ring true. I love me. the repetition of it. He says, "Here is the root of the root, and the bud of the bud, and the sky of the sky of a tree called life." And it's just two of two of two of two. You know,、mm. and these are all very natural images. There's a certain gentleness to it. I suppose we haven't actually talked about what is love. What does it mean to talk about love? What is love? What is love? <laughs> yes, so we've got a poem here called "The Definition of Love" by Andrew Marvel. So let's marvel. Let's let Marvel take it away. Marvel at the genius that is Marvel. Okay, so I'm just going to read out a short section of the poem. In fact, the final two stanzas.、Um, he uses a lot of mathematical conceits in this poem because he's a metaphysical poet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so okay, here goes. As lines, so love oblique may well themselves in every angle greet. But ours so truly parallel, though infinite, can never meet. Therefore, the love which us doth bind, but fate so enviously debars, is the conjunction of the mind and opposition of the stars. The conjunction of the mind and the opposition of the stars. It's beautiful, like, isn't it? It's together and it's not together. It just clicks into place. I mean, I love how he takes all these mathematical conceits and he kind of uses them to talk about something as intangible and abstract as love.、That、and it's just so poignant. I mean, the idea of two parallel lines being so similar 
running on forever but never being able to meet. I thought it was quite beautiful. That is um, one of the things I do appreciate about the metaphysical poets, the way that they use something as tedious as math <laughs> to <laughs> illustrate something as abstract and beautiful as love. I'm reminded of another metaphysical poet, John Donne, mm. who um, in his valediction forbidding mourning, he uses the conceit of a compass. At the end, he says, Thy firmness makes my circle just and makes me end where I begun. So he's traveling on the outside, like the outer foot of the compass. And as he comes towards the center, which is his loved one, they come together. Very neat. It's very neat. Another poem I really like is The Forgotten Dialect of the Heart by Jack Gilbert. Jack Gilbert was an American poet. He wrote in the 20th century, and he described himself as a serious romantic. So his poems are typically about love and loss, but they aren't sentimental. Mm. So this one I found quite interesting because he's kind of talking about the hieroglyphics of love and its ineffability. I'm just going to read out the first couple of lines. How astonishing it is that language can almost mean, and frightening that it does not quite. Love, we say. God, we say. Rome and Michiko, we write and the words get it all wrong. We say bread, and it means according to which nation. French has no word for home, and we have no word for strict pleasure. A people in northern India is dying out because their ancient tongue has no words for endearment. I dream of lost vocabularies that might express some of what we no longer can. Yep, and it goes on and on. He turns to various images from shiploads of Thuya to giraffes in the dark to ancient scripts. And he ends by saying... Perhaps the spiral Minoan script is not language, but a map. What we feel most has no name but amber, arches, cinnamon, horses, and birds. So I love how he doesn't try to pin down what love actually is. He's kind of trying to get at it through this process of subtle indirection, through all these various images, and he's trying to get the reader, the listener, to marvel at how ineffable love actually is. The questions, the exercise, the very exercise of love poetry, which is to put into, capture in words, this, like you said, ineffable feeling. Mm. And he's using these symbols. Hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphics, yeah. like amber arches. I, I like that list. Amber arches, cinnamon, horses, birds. Yeah, it's very beautiful without becoming cloying and sentimental. Who was Michiko? Michiko was his wife. Oh. She died after 11 years of marriage oh, wow. to him. Yeah. She was a sculptor, Michiko Nogami, who was referenced in the poem. Roman Michiko. Yeah. yeah. And that's romantic love. But what about when it goes wrong? When it's about to go wrong. <laughs> when it's about to go wrong. So we've got some pretty dark love poems in here. Yeah, the two poets in literary history who had a famously troubling marriage. Mm -hmm. And their names are Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath. That ended badly. It ended very badly. Yeah, they were married for a while, and eventually they separated after Hughes was found to be having an affair with some other woman. And Plath, who had been suffering from depression for quite some time, eventually killed herself at the age of 30 by sticking her head in a gas oven. Mm -hmm. So that's how it ended. And um, this is a poem that Hughes wrote, presumably about his relationship with Sylvia Plath. It's called Love Song. So I'm just going to read the start of the poem. He loved her and she loved him. His kisses sucked out her whole past and future, or tried to. He had no other appetite. She bit him, she gnawed him, she sucked. She wanted him complete inside her. Safe and sure, forever and ever. Their little cries fluttered into the curtains. So it kind of develops in this direction. It's very Love is described as a very vampiric, very predatory kind of thing. Oh, it gets really nasty. Very violent, despite being passionate. And it ends with these five lines. Their heads fell apart into sleep like the two halves of a lopped melon. 
but love is hard to stop. And their entwined sleep, the exchanged arms and legs, and their dreams, their brains took each other hostage. In the morning, they wore each other's face. This is love as a horror movie. <laughs> it's incredibly sinister. Yes. They wore each other's face. It's a complete absorption of the other into the self. It's the bad side of love. It's destructive love. Yes, well, taking each other hostage and swapping limbs. I mean, it borders on romantic, but it's actually incredibly toxic. It is. Yes, that is the word for it. Toxic. Okay, it's now time for some John Donne, as promised. Dun 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 dun. Yep, and the poem we have chosen is the relic. So before we get to the relic, why don't we talk about a label that has often been used to describe Donne and Marvell? Metaphysical poets. So what does it mean, metaphysical poet? The metaphysical poets were characterized by their ability to make use of very inventive conceits to get a certain point across. For example, John Donne in his poem, the one you mentioned just now about the compass being used to、um, convey what he was trying to get at. So in this particular poem, the relic, Donne imagines what it would be like if his grave would be broken up. Years after he died, and for the person who dug up the grave to discover him lying next to his lover, so it was a kind of romantic. Well, it's not really the first thing you would think of if you're saying romantic. Like I've dug up my <laughs> grave, and here I am, a dead corpse with my lover, also a dead corpse, and you can only tell it's us because of this bracelet of bright hair around her wrist or my wrist, which could be a token of love. It could be a、yeah. nod to the religious overtones. But yeah, I guess the thing with so many of these poems is that they tend to be. Of a certain morbid bent, <laughs> yes. the idea of love outlasting everything, and when you talk about eternity and time,、um, you think about death and love transcending time.、Mm-hmm. Hence, his references to bones and bright hair about the bone. Yeah, perhaps we can read a little part of it、yeah. just so people understand what we're talking about. The moment where the grave is broke up again. So it begins with this stanza that goes, "When my grave is broke up again, some second guests to entertain." For graves have learned that women hid, to be more than one a bid, and he that digs it spies a bracelet of bright hair about the bone. Will he not let us alone, and think that there a loving couple lies, who thought that this device might be some way to make their souls at the last busy day meet at this grave and make a little stay? So first of all, John Donne can never resist the opportunity to insert a sex joke. <laughs> For graves have learned that woman head to be to more than one a bit. Oh yeah,、wow. woman head bit.、Mm. Yeah, can draw the references. Yeah, Donne. For some history, Donne was a player before he met his wife Anne Moore, and they eloped in this extremely dramatic way.、Mm. Uh, he, I think, he wrote this verse about them: John Donne, Anne Donne, Anne Donne. Then they were <laughs> they were very poor because her father disowned them and they had twelve children, which on his salary was it was very difficult to sustain them. But he really he does seem to truly truly have loved Anne and his poems for his poems for love of her. One of the very few things that can compete with his poems about religion. There is a certain maturity to his style as a love poet, and oftentimes his poems about romantic love tend to also be poems that allude to religious. Longing,、mm. yeah. I mean, there are overtones of Catholicism in this particular poem. It reflects this ambivalence about Catholicism. Actually, this poem also reminds me of a quote from the English art critic John Berger, who once wrote. I'm just going to quote him here: "What reconciles me to my own death more than anything else is the image of a place, a place where your bones and mine are buried, thrown and covered together. They are strewn there pell-mell. One of your ribs leans against my skull." The metacarpal of my left hand lies inside your pelvis. 
Against my broken ribs, your breast like a flower. The hundred bones of our feet are scattered like gravel. It is strange that this image of our proximity, concerning as it does mere phosphate of calcium, should bestow a sense of peace. Yet it does. With you, I can imagine a place where to be phosphate of calcium is enough. That's very beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> and I think that it reminds me, again, to go back to the last line of the relic, where he says, All measure and all language I should pass, should I tell what a miracle she was. And that's a big deal coming from someone like Dunn, who prides himself on his language, on his wit, and he's saying, none of this is enough for me to explain the miracle of her. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of death and loss, here are some poems about loss when you've lost a loved one, whether through breakups or through death or otherwise. One of my favorite poets of all time is Elizabeth Bishop. And one of her most famous poems is One Art, which is a villanelle. A villanelle is a poem that has two set repeated rhymes. And so it will repeat these rhymes across three lines. Three line stanzas. Three line stanzas. Five three line stanzas followed by one four line stanza. So 19 lines in total in the villanelle. Yeah. And the last four line stanza will use both of the rhymes as the final two lines. Coupling them together. Coupling them together. <laughs> Except in this case, the coupling seems to have broken. But it's such a clever poem. It is. In this case, the two end rhymes are master and disaster. So this poem is about the art of losing. I mean, it begins with the stanza that says, The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seemed filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. So it's very incantatory. She, I get a feeling reading it that she's just trying to convince herself that it's no big deal to lose something. Yeah. They kind of work her way towards that understanding and belief. And the losses get ultimately, bigger and bigger. Yeah, so we move from her losing door keys to her forgetting names. And then finally, the kicker, even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love. I shan't have lied. So she's obviously talking about the loss of someone. And that's buried way down in the poem, but it's what gives this poem its reason for being. And the last part she says, it's evident the art of losing is not too hard to master, though it may look like, and then she inserts, write, write it, it, like disaster. Exactly. So this attempt to keep a reign over herself and to master her feelings, that juxtaposition between mastery of yourself and disaster is just so powerful. And I love how she picked the title One Art for this poem, because it's like there's a missing H, right? Yes. One, it should be one heart, but the H is missing. She's lost the H. It becomes one art. So she's using her art to work her way through whatever it is she was mourning the loss of, presumably the loss of a lover, of someone she loved very much indeed. Yeah, so the sheer control of this poem, uh, if we could juxtapose that against this poem called Cascando by Samuel Beckett, which just sort of goes really hysterical. <laughs> yeah, Beckett, better known for his plays, here talks about the loss of love and he just rambles and rambles and rambles. And he goes, Saying again, if you do not teach me, I shall not learn. Saying again, there is a last, even of last times, last times of begging, last times of loving, of knowing, not knowing, pretending. A last, even of last times of saying, if you do not love me, I shall not be loved. If I do not love you, I shall not love. Terrified again of not loving, of loving and not you, of being loved and not by you, of knowing, not knowing, pretending, pretending, I and all the others that will love you if they love you, unless they love you. Yeah, so it's this head-banging nature of this poem that I think puts lots of people off, myself included. I think it would have been very cathartic to write, but I wouldn't really enjoy reading something like this. I mean, I will not say, for pleasure anyway. I will say that I did identify very much with this poem at a time when I suppose I felt quite similarly in the head-banging. Banging your head against the wall because of you're presenting this alternative like of loving and not you, of being loved and not by you. 
I and all the others that will love you. And you're just trying to contemplate this future, which you do not love this person that you loved, and it just doesn't work. And you're just slamming, you know, yourself against yourself. And then finally, there's that turn at the end, and it goes, unless they love you, and it's that like crack in the door of your misery. A slight offering, like unless they love you, and then you can let go. A crack in the door. One of the poems that has really stuck with me over the years is Shahrazad by Richard Sykin. It's from his first poetry book, Crush, which was in 2005. It won several things: a Lambda Literary Award. It won the Yale Younger Series of Poets, and it's said to be influenced by the death of his boyfriend in a car accident. So Shahrazad, as we know, is from A Thousand and One Nights, and She has to keep telling stories to the Sultan to delay her execution the next morning. So every night she tells him a different story, and she breaks it off at sunrise so that the cliffhanger will cause him to delay her execution. This is Shahrazad by Richard Sykin. Tell me about the dream where we pulled the bodies out of the lake and dressed them in warm clothes again. How it was late and no one could sleep. The horses running until they forget that they are horses. It's not like a tree where the roots have to end somewhere. It's more like a song on a policeman's radio, how we rolled up the carpet so we could dance, and the days were bright red, and every time we kissed, there was another apple to slice into pieces. Look at the light through the window pane. That means it's noon. That means we're inconsolable. Tell me how all this and love too will ruin us. These are bodies possessed by light. Tell me we'll never get used to it. What do you like about this poem? I like the imagery of it. I like how it seems. It's both it's very cinematic and yet it's very dreamlike. And it seems to be trying to pull things in reverse. You know, you're pulling the bodies out of the lake. You're putting them in warm clothes. There's this desperate attempt to reverse time and also to catch it at the moment when everything is going well, even though you know full well it's going to go on. Time moves on. Time destroys things. Time moves you into ruin. And he's trying to beg the other person to tell him a story—the story of how they love each other, even though the story won't solve anything. It's like trying to make time run in reverse, isn't it? I think so. Pulling up the bodies out of the lake and dressing them in warm clothes again, rolling up the carpet so you could dance on it. Yeah, and then he goes, "Tell me, we'll never get used to it." But that's the tragedy of it all. We always get used to it. Okay, I think it's time to move to more local terrain and also lighter terrain. I think this has all been a bit depressing. I don't uh, find it very depressing, but maybe、yeah. that's just my average level of your love life. Of- <laughs> no, just in general, <laughs>、okay. introspective. You discovered this poem which you stumbled upon the other day, titled "Small Town Romance" by C. H. Ian. Can、so、you tell us a bit more about it? I found this poem in an anthology published by Ethos Books called "Unfree Verse," and it celebrates the history of local Singaporean poetry in formal writing. So we are used to free verse in a lot of poems, right, without rhyme and repetition, but. It celebrates the use of formal poems. So in this case, it's a very simple rhyme. It was written in 1959. I call it the Peranakan Paktor poem. It's, <laughs> it's a very silly little flirtatious moment between this Nonya and this Baba. So this Nonya, Nonya Wee was on the way to Muat Town one sunny day, and Nonya Wee met Baba Tan crossing the river in a small sampan. As you do. Yeah, and the rhyme is very simple. It's a bit sly, and then Baba Tan asked Nonya Wee if she would like to go and drink kopi together. And Nonya Wee said blushingly, "How can Inje people see?" And then they go back and forth. And he offers to blunder her with Tiao Mi. And then finally, Nonya Wee gives in to his propositions and says, "Smile, Nonya Wee, at Baba Tan. Okay, Inje, let's have fun." <laughs> yeah, it's very cute. Yeah. 
I like how they use all the very local phrases, Mbaba mm-hmm. Malay phrases, and rhymes. And it's so short, but so funny. It works. Yeah. It's almost like a caricature, but there's also something very beautiful about it. Yeah. Simple. And- you know, nowadays, it's the swipe right of the 1950s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another local poet who has written about love is Joshua Ip. Yeah, he's written quite a lot of quite quite a few poems about love. He has written one book filled with poems about love, and it's titled "Making Love with Scrabble Tiles." So, one poem which we have picked from this volume is titled "Belief System." I'm just going to read it out in its entirety because it's not very long. I believe in love, just like a Singaporean believes in spring, namely that it occurs somewhere, like a frog in a well. Believes in the sphere of the sky which he tells. Everyone is the sun, and is. For maybe one hour a day, quite right. What do you like about this poem? I like how it makes reference to the fact that Singapore doesn't really have four seasons, and he yokes it to this idea of not having experienced love yet still believing that it exists. There's this line break that occurs in Singaporean where he rhymes "sing" with "spring", with spring. by breaking Singaporean, yeah. and it leads to this slightly awkward starting the third line. <laughs> and there's the frog in the well, which is the jing di zhi wa. yeah, which every primary school Chinese kid would have learned in school. So, I mean, not just in this poem, in most of the others in this volume, he makes these very relatable references to little details in everyday Singapore life. So he might refer to, you know, the practice of collecting plastic bags after you have visited a supermarket and then folding them up and keeping them in the drawer. And references to cold storage girl and NTUC boy. Or was it NTUC boy and cold storage girl? But yeah, just very local, very relatable. Since we're on the topic of light poems, we have Having a Cope With You by Frank O'Hara. It's both a very dizzying declaration of love, and yet it's very simple. And he's basically saying he would rather have a coke with this person than go do all these things and go on all these holidays to Barcelona, San Sebastian, Hendai, Biarritz, Bayonne, and look at their face rather than all of the portraits in the world. Yeah, exactly. He'd rather look on the person's face than gaze upon a statue, for example. I just love how joyous it is, how carelessly joyous and generous this poem is. He flits from one image to another. He talks about his love for this person and this person's love for yogurt in a single sentence. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to read out from one of the, can even call it a stanza, one of the stanzas in his poem. He says, I look at you and I would rather look at you than all the portraits in the world except possibly for the Polish writer occasionally. And anyway, it's in the frick, which thank heavens you haven't gone to yet so we can go together the first time and the fact that you move so beautifully more or less takes care of futurism. Then he goes on and on and on. So it's just so frenetic, so generous. And that's a great line. The fact that you move so beautifully more or less takes care of futurism. <laughs> you know, you've taken care of an entire art movement. Exactly. O'Hara was quite a personality. At his funeral, the artist Larry Rivers told fellow mourners that O'Hara was my best friend. There were at least 60 people in New York who thought Frank O'Hara was their best friend. He's <laughs> so, <laughs> an all-around friendly guy. Yes, he would rather hang out with them than look at portraits. Look exactly. at the Polish writer in the frick. And I love how irreverent it is as well, because I think a lot of people would rather hang out with their friends and loved ones than spend time in the dusty old museum looking at portraits. Though that said, Frank O'Hara really did like looking at portraits. Mm. He was an artist as well as a poet. I mean, and I love how it starts with him talking about Coke. The title of the poem is Having a Coke with You. And then it just spills over into the rest of the poem. Having a Coke with You, and then it goes into the first line, is even more fun than going to San Sebastian, Irun, Hende, so on. So it's just playful and funny. And a Coke being kind of almost synonymous with American pop culture, this sense of 
a beverage mass-produced available to the everyman versus all these statues and portraits you would find or associate with the old world in Europe, for example. Okay, so we've moved from romantic love to love bothering on mob on the morbid and violent to Frank O'Hara's brand of you know, joyous cold drinking exaltation and yeah exactly a friendly kind of love I think it's now time for some poetry that focuses on love for the self yeah like Love After Love by Derek Walcott which is a the time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome and say sit here eat you will love again the stranger who was yourself and it ends with sit feast on your life I think it's a very heartening reminder that after everything you go through, you can still come back and look at yourself in the mirror and say, there's still somebody there left over who you have for yourself. It's about self-discovery, right? Loving again the stranger who was yourself. Yeah. And Pooja Nancy, local poet, current director of the Singapore Writers' Festival, she has this collection called Love is an Empty Barstool. And in this, she has one poem, which is called Here is a Flower That Needs No Water. And she also is, again, another reminder that you don't have to depend on a romantic love, per se, even though that's great. If you can, you can turn back to platonic love, to friends' love, to your own love. So she writes, You with the thunderstorm that you carry in the heart, you've jammed close so hard, all the words in all the world couldn't pry it apart. You with the overcast laugh, you with the fists that open only in your sleep, marked with lines that look like irrigation tracks to a land where you are clearly lost. Stop. Look at me. Breathe. My lips are not cement and they cannot seal these wounds. But I am here, palms held open, and I love you. Well, uh, to put it in a very cliche way, it is love, <sighs> I think. And Pooja is actually part of this Valentine's Day event at the Projector. She and some other poets, uh, Marilyn Tan and Alfian Saat, are going to be doing an event called Please Text Me Back, a Filthy Valentine's Reading. I do think that might involve some sexting. Personally penned sexy texts, but that's on Friday the 14th of February. Tickets, $15. So that's something to do if you don't have any plans for Valentine's Day. If you do, we are very happy for you. And that's all we have time for today. Once again, I'm Olivia Ho. And I'm To Win Lee. And thank you for listening to our podcast and we'll see you next time. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.